because it's in everybody's interest to get some rules of the road on cyber. It's much harder than getting the rules on just about anything that I experienced in the Cold War. Welcome to Network 2020's audio edition of this virtual event. Be sure to check out our other events, media, and videos at network2020.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Courtney Doggart. I'm the president of Network 2020, and we are delighted to have Jack Devine back with us today um, to talk about uh, Russian intelligence and his book, uh, Spymaster's Prison. Just uh, as background for those of you who might be joining us for the first time, Network 2020 is an inclusive international community. Um, and we really try to bridge the gap between the private sector and the foreign policy worlds. And we do this in a number of ways through briefings. We have other programs that are research programs. Um, we run Innovators Awards. We have a lot of interesting stuff. So if you don't know about us, please um, check out our work on our website and follow us in all of the, the usual places. Um, with that, I'm going to turn it over to longtime member, Network 2020 member, Frank Bean, who will be leading the conversation with Jack Devine. Thank you, Courtney. Uh, again, good afternoon or good morning or good evening, depending on where you're signing in from. My name is Frank Bean, and on behalf of Network 2020, I would like to welcome you all to a virtual discussion. Before I introduce our guest, I would like to remind the audience that you can submit a question at any time during the virtual discussion, but please use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen as opposed to the chat function. It is an absolute honor to introduce Jack Devine for this virtual briefing. Jack is a 32-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency and served in leadership positions in virtually all areas of intelligence, including analysis, operations, technology, and management. He was both acting director and associate director of operations. From 1992 to 1993, he was the chief of the Latin American division, and from 1990 to 1992, he headed the CIA's counter-narcotics center. From 1985 to 1987, Jack oversaw the CIA's Afghan task force and in so doing, ran the largest covert action campaign of the Cold War. After retiring from government service, Jack founded the Arkin Group LLC, which specializes in international crisis management, strategic intelligence, and investigative research. He is the recipient of the Distinguished Intelligence Medal and is recognized as an expert on the subject and has written op-eds and articles for the Washington Post, the Financial Times, the Miami Herald, and the World Policy Journal. He has also been featured on CBS, NBC, MSNBC, Fox News, and PBS. Jack's memoir, Good Hunting, an American Spymaster's Story, was published in 2014. Bob Woodward called it a sophisticated and deeply informed account of real life and the real CIA. Jack's second book, Spymaster's Prism, came out earlier this year, and we will be talking about it momentarily. And with that, Jack, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. It's good to be back, Frank. Pleasure. So Spymaster's Prism is focused almost exclusively on Russia. And you know that Russian intelligence operations against the United States have targeted successive U.S. governments since 1917. Yet what is new today is that now you have this omnipresent use of cyber tools for spying and covert activities. Jack, talk about how the Internet has changed the nature of intelligence work and also what should or what can the United States do to confront the SVR and the GRU and their proxies in cyberspace? I'm often asked what is the difference in the intelligence world from the Cold War until today? And running spies, people volunteering to work with us, collecting intelligence and trying to change events 
in support of national security interests all remain the same. But there's been a revolution in the last 25 years, and that is in the area of cyber, internet, social media, the capacity for information. You will think I'm a prehistoric creature, maybe I am. But if I talked about how we communicated when I first joined the agency in the late 60s and when I was abroad in the first assignment, I'm going to make one footnote on this, and that is we, we used to send back written things in addition to because you could in addition to cables, because cables had to be really short. We cut them in half and blocked out certain keywords, mailed one half one week, mailed the other half the second, and we scot they scotch taped it together in Washington. That was the speed of information. Now cables, when I, you'll see this one in my book, when I reported to the, the IND government was gonna be overthrown, it was a short cable because that's all we could do. The ability to collect information, the big issue today is the size of it. How much information, how do you separate junk from fact and fiction? And then what is now happening is they're taking the information and targeting it targeting for people, targeting in order to find people that they want to suborn, targeting uh, platforms like our, our government agencies for, for, for information. So it's the speed with which you collect information. And the other part is the part that I really deal with a great deal, and that's the covert action part. How do you intelligence services use that um, information offensively and that is against other countries and their platforms and i would just say there's a little secret that everybody in the room knows that everybody is collects at the the level of their budgets and and, and capabilities but every country even the smallest ones have cyber capabilities and those of you that wander around the world and don't realize some of the what we consider the backwaters of the world have by my standards of when I joined the agency, light years advanced in the ability to utilize information. Now, the, so cyber can be used to destroy things. It's not so hot in building things in my point of view. And how do you defend yourself? Well, I think we're doing all the things you do, right? You develop the best countermeasures, the best technical people that know how to link things. But you gotta remember that most of our infrastructure communications and, and so on is in the private sector. So, you know, the government can't mandate as opposed to when in, uh, when you look at Russia or, or China. So we should be doing everything we can, but we got to realize that, that there's a tremendous vulnerability. So I come back to one of my uh, skill sets, if you will, and what I was in charge of are human spies. And the other thing that people don't realize that many technical operations have their beginnings because a human source told them where to go. So in cyber today, how do you defend yourself? You know, we spend billions on that. Spies are cheap. I mean, not cheap in the sense of their personal worth, but you know, you could build an aircraft carrier and pay for all America's spies, I think, without, without too much exaggeration. In other words, it doesn't take a, a lot of money. It takes a lot of skill to do it. But if you have a source in the right places, it's, this is what your enemy is doing in cyber, you greatly improve your chance of being able to respond to that in ahead of time and find countermeasures. So I, I'm here to tell you that the spy business is alive and well for those of you who are worried that it may not be a long-term investment. I'd, I'd invest long on, on the spy business. 
So the spy business is alive and well, but things have, have changed uh, dramatically in the last, I guess you could say 20 or 10 years. During the Cold War, the CIA and the KGB actually adhered to a kind of modus operandi that set the rules of the game, so to speak. So please describe what were the Moscow rules and why Putin's 2016 attempt to sway the US election represented such a seismic shift or breach in the Russia-US relationship. Well, Frank, they're really good questions, for sure. Um, there are books out there that are a Moscow rule. They're not good books, and they serve a purpose. And that's for the person that wants to learn, well, how do you operate in Moscow? right? Or, so I would say don't wear a Mets hat right? or speak in, uh, in a, the Bronx accent, or you're going to give yourself away. So my, my point is there is a set of rules about how you operate. That's not what I'm talking about. That's really a relatively new set of things that are out in the public. But when I first joined the agency, some of the old timers talked about the existing Moscow rules. And what it meant was an understanding. There's no written rule. Uh, there's probably no documented meeting. But there were things that you will not do. It's not what you're agreeing to do. It's what you're not going to do. For example, as the best of my knowledge, there was never uh, an incident of the U.S. counterfeiting rubles or the Russian counterfeiting U.S. dollars. Why? Both have the technical capabilities, but you would destroy the financial base of the world. Right? So we also had, um, in those days, you called it a gentleman agreement, and that was that you know, we wouldn't rough up each other's officers because we were, we're fighting and for, for sure, but we're not, you know, we're not taking it personal. It's all business, as the mafia would say, right? So, and, but there are a few breaches there. I won't talk about too much on each side, but by and large, there were understandings. The big one, and this is where we get to spy master's prism. The reason I'm so fixated on Russia is that the 2016 election, it wasn't they were collected information in the United States. That is something that you would expect intelligence services to do. But the understanding from Stalin forward was we were not going to meddle in each other's countries. We would do battle around the world in Afghanistan and Chile and you know Eastern Europe, you know, or in, in, in Berlin, but we were not going to meddle in each other's home court. And this is why I, I think we spend too much time about the political dimension of 2016. We're not looking at how egregious the violation was in terms of working operationally in the United States to stir up trouble in our political environment. And this isn't an accident. I mean, they have what they call the hybrid strategy. It is their chief of staff, Jerusalem. And, and his strategy was basically, yes, military, economic, but you also need to weaken your enemy politically using the new world of cyber and disinformation. And Russians have been in disinformation from the czars forward, and they were very good at it in the Cold War. So this is the part that we don't have a hand on. And I, I just, what I want to say is there are no rules right now. This is where, when you look at nuclear weapons, you can see them, you sit down, you have a treaty, everybody can put the numbers on the table. How do you get an agreement on cyber? Now there've been a couple, but to me, they seemed wrong-footed. It's you're just not going to get people to fess up. And I'm not sure what, what a meaningful agreement is. Therefore, we have a world now where one party, in the case of the Russians, feel that they can play in our political situation. How are we going to respond? Now, today is a big news day, big news day for my book, because my book addresses so Russian aggression. And that's what 
the president of the United States, President Biden is doing right now. He's counterpunching with a pretty, um, a pretty strong response. And one part of it says unseen actions. So Americans have trouble with the unseen actions, but I think that's the world we live in. We're gonna to have to get comfortable with some things being unseen, not unseen by our Congress and oversight committees, but unseen because you can't talk about about it. So this is tricky, very tricky business. And I'm concerned that there's room when you don't have rules, there's room for miscalculation. So I, I think, and again, it's not rules, uh, a list of all the things you can do. It's let's agree on a few things we're not going to do. One of those, I would make it number one, no meddling in either country. I would hear, adhere to that to the letter in terms of if I were in charge of uh, worldwide operations, I would adhere to the letter of that. I would not meddle inside if we reach an agreement that they won't meddle in here. And it's easily verifiable. You'll soon find out whether the other party's not honoring the agreement. Could you speak to, you know, you have some very interesting insights on Putin the man before this is someone that, you know, went from obscurity to the head of the FSB to the president in something like seven years. Um, what do you think is different or interesting about him? And talk about his background in Dresden versus some of the people that you were interacting with in Berlin or in other uh, probably more prominent stations in Europe. Well, I would think that everybody in the intelligence community, I'm hoping they did a long, long time ago, but, you know, all of our journalists have all been uh, looking at this, you know, important, when you have an autocratic state, you better understand the personality and what makes the head of that autocratic state uh, tick. So in the book, I have a the chapter called Spy Master President, right? And uh, there's been very few Spy Master Presidents, right? But there's a subtitle under that chapter and it says, there is no such thing as a former KGB officer. Vladimir Putin, that's his word, there it's word. In fairness to Vladimir, I would say there's no such thing as a former CIA officer, Jack Devine. But what he's really saying, I think, is it's a way of looking at the world. You know, it's a hard edged, realistic, rooted, intelligence-driven. In other words, if, if he's, uh, you know, he, uh, KGB officer, you know, never, never leaves, he's saying that he, he knows how to do this, collect information, analyze it, and have a plan and execute. And I think, I think he's a, it looks to me like he's a pretty effective spy master. I just happen to disagree profoundly with what his plan is. And let me just go to your question about, he really wanted to become a KGB officer as a very young person, 17. He was rejected because he was too young, not because he wasn't talented. He came back, got, got into the service and it's a very competitive thing. It's a real prestige position when he joined to be a member of the KGB and with it came benefits. But unlike as you said, the people I met in Berlin or Tokyo or Mexico City, you know, he was assigned to Dresden. The other places you have fine wine and Western culture or Asian culture, but in Dresden, you're in, the, you're in uh, uh, La Carre's, George Smiley's dark world of Carla and espionage and, 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 uh, and Marcus Wolf, who was probably the most famous spy master because of the size of his uh, unit, uh, 100,000 spies, I think, at one point. No one had a picture of him for many, many years. So he was in, not that he worked under Marcus Wolf or even coordination with him, but it was a mindset of that 
Eastern German sort of world. And it was a, a real old fashioned way of looking at the West, you know, that we were an implacable enemy and we were out to get Russia. So he was there and had to destroy and burn his KGB files. He saw his country and he's not a communist, the, but he is a Russian nationalist of the first order. And I, I'm not knocking that because I'm an American nationalist of the first order. So that isn't the isn't the point is when he saw that it was a searing blow. And I think he set out in his mind there was ever any opportunity where he was going to change the, the, the course of history in that regard, he would do it. So he went off to St. Peter or got seen in Petersburg and learned a lot about politics and worked his way very adroitly at a very young age into you know becoming the head of the FBI and then being part of Yeltsin's cabinet and then you know being prime minister. The oligarchs at that time thought that they could handle him or the party people thought, well, he's a good company guy and he'll, he'll go along. But the truth of the matter is it didn't take long before they were looking at the wrong end of the telescope and he's gone on since then. So what is his strategy? And I'm going back to it. If you don't think we're not in some version of the Cold War, read the paper today on what the United States is going, how we're going to respond and what the particular offenses are. And they're not trivial. So now, is, how is Putin going to respond? And I think if you know how he ticks, he's going to respond in kind, which we should anticipate. And I'm sure our government is anticipating it. But it may be the, the groundwork for a more serious discussion. You can't start a discussion when there isn't a strong policy, strong position on both sides. Then you can start to work towards the center. So I'm expecting you know, Putin to respond. But my problem is he sees us as a black enemy. I really think Russia should be part of the West. You know, there's no reason it's not a communist state. Their, their commerce, even their culture should blend in with Western, Western Europe. Why are we having this disagreement? So it's because he's stuck in the old plan, you know, weaken the neighbors, move in and take Ukraine, at least half of it as of this morning, and take over the Crimea, you know, get warm water ports in our Middle East countries, try to annoy the West wherever you get a chance, like Venezuela or Cuba. So it's it's effective. I mean, he's, he's carrying it out well, but it's it's the wrong strategy for this age, in my opinion. It's wrong for Russia, I believe, wrong for us, wrong for the world. I, I would hope there'd be a reset, but I, I don't see that. I don't see the movement in the reset. And after we take these steps, we are pushing back reset, but I think that's what has to be done so there can be a serious coming together on what we will not do and have agreements. Now, there's a conference coming up uh, on climate in the next few weeks and President Putin is expected to be there and so is our president. It'd be an ideal opportunity of a sidebar discussion between some of my old friends on both sides and you know, see if we can't re-engage because it's in everybody's interest to get some rules of the road on cyber. It's much harder than getting the rules on just about anything that I experienced in the Cold War. Well, you know, Putin has until recently played a poor hand surprisingly well, but as you mentioned, you know, even what's going on this morning, but, but markedly since 2019, he's had a lot on his plate. So you have low oil prices, a shrinking economy exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic, a growing and now widespread protest movement at home. He has a revolutionary situation in Belarus. Uh, the fallout after Armenia and Azerbaijanian conflict, you know, what's going on in Eastern Ukraine, which is heating up as we speak. 
So I guess the question is, is a weaker or weakening Putin less dangerous or more dangerous for the United States? Well, I wouldn't bring out the ban and saying that he's he's so weak that now he doesn't pose a threat. I would say he was as strong as yesterday, but you can see there's problems, right? And he's got to deal effectively with them. And the sanctions are going to produce new sets of, of, uh, of problems for him. Um, you know, it's important to remember Russia today is not the Soviet Union. You know, its GDP is closer to Spain and Italy, right? It doesn't have, it has a piece of the Ukraine, right? So it's a much, its base is smaller and you're absolutely right. And it's limited around a few basic products. And the problem with all autocratic systems is that they have a lifespan and they are the, they sow the seeds of their own undoing. Now, he performed, I thought, extremely well in trying to get the Russian economy back, and he's remembered favorably for that. But now you're looking at more and more years going by, and people are saying, well, what did you do for me lately? And so when Navalny uh, was poisoned and then went back and is now in jail, you know, you had 100,000 people in the middle of the Russian winter out there demonstrating. That's not a good sign if you're sitting in the Kremlin. But people shouldn't read that as um, a sufficient critical mass to think that Putin is any any way significantly weakened. How he handles it is another another story. We, in the intelligence world, I'll just blame the intelligence. Let me blame myself. We have a tendency when we see a country in decline that they we think they're going to decline faster, and the people are going to do something to change it. And it's always double whatever we think it is. People will put up with a great deal of sacrifice before there's a movement to change because most people deep down understand the risk of, in, uh, of instability. So I think Putin's gonna be around for a while. The problem that, that I would underscore is where you started and that is the power of cyber and uh, informal communication, social media. We don't like the United States. We're having problems dealing with it. But in a democracy, it's a way to let air out of, of, of tension. If you're in any of the autocratic, whether it's China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, the ability, that ability to take small disturbances and demonstrations, and suddenly it becomes a big issue, and you're much more vulnerable, is the reality of modern times. So even though I am saying that don't write Putin off prematurely, you do it at your own risk because he's a, he's a real good street fighter. But I think when, when you're looking at it, I also wouldn't be surprised if any autocratic government, I wake up tomorrow morning and there's massive demonstrations and riots and you have a problem and you can't get a group. Look at Hong Kong. I mean, out of what seemed like out of the blue, you know, went on for months. So. And it takes the, the response, and this is where he'll be tested. And that is the response, you gotta be really careful. You use the iron, too much of the iron hand, you create more problems. You don't use enough, people don't take you seriously. So it's an art form. And I think the game, it's not a game, it's too serious for the coffee game, but this, this situation will, has a long way to play out. Before we go into China and Hong Kong, which is really uh, very important here, 
Could you speak to, you've mentioned to me in the past and, and you've, you've spoken about this idea that people have come up to you in your career and say, it just takes a spark or just one match and everything is going to just, you know, it, it's on the way out and we just need to push a little bit. Could you talk about, I think, something, some, uh, an area that you know well, uh, Venezuela, and how that's a good example of it's not, it, it's these things are a little more complicated than maybe it looks like on the outside and it takes more to kind of push a regime than just a match. Let me answer it with what I would call a bit of a primer. And, and that is inside of the intelligence business and the operational part, the directorate of operations, right? You have analysis, science, now digital and administration. In the spying world, and what your audience will probably find fascinating, nobody, and I mean nobody inside of CIA ever uses the word spy or spy master. Right? You're, it's something more elegant, your chief of, oper of plans, your chief of plans. You're a, an operational intelligence officer, you're not a spy or a spy master. But when you step outside and you're trying to reach millions and millions of people and trying to communicate, you know, this is a language that's understood. And the spy master is the person who's in charge of spies. The spies are foreigners, you know, agents are foreigners. The FBI gets confusing because the FBI calls their, their staff officers agents. But in the, spy, the intelligence world, they're the foreigners that are working on our behalf handled by, by spy masters. But in that world of the operational world, there's two major divisions and a couple secondary but terribly important counterintelligence is critically important and that's one of those long subset um, disciplines the two big ones are espionage collecting intelligence recruiting agents running agents around the world and 95 percent of people in the operational direct that's what they want to do that's why they join that's what they want they want to run spy but when they built the charter they had a, a note in there uh, it's really a, a clause it says, uh, 1947, the charter says, and you will carry out those activities as directed by the president of the United States. Every word in that clause is critically important, including uh, by the president of the United States. And it's called covert action. It's the action part. If you like Le Carre, uh, George Smiley on one side, now we're talking James Bond, Ian Fleming. Now, the problem with Ian, uh, with James Bond is he never did a report, he wasn't married. You know, he never had to do an accounting, right? Or sit right in an office. So you take all the glamour out, but it was the action part. His job was to try and change the circumstances. It's the part that gets the CIA a lot of notoriety. It's very controversial. It's, and I can write a lot in the, both of my books because I came across and was involved in a large, large part of it. Most CIA officers tend to stay, stay clear of it. But it's very important. And it's one of the reasons why the president calls on the director of CIA. He's like, I got a problem. I appreciate what you told me. But now, how do we fix this problem? So that's the, the covert action. So then it gets to your point. And I don't mean to drag it out, but it, it, the, the, in order to answer your question, people have to understand what we're talking about. So when you have a covert action operation, I said, I want to come back because 99.9% .9 of America doesn't realize everything you don't like about CIA's covert action has been signed by the president of the United States since the mid seventies. And before that, there wasn't an operation that wasn't approved verbally. That's a pretty big statement. And I'd like to have somebody find an exception to it. I haven't seen it yet. And I, you know, I studied this. So 
the question, and I, and I go into the book, when do you use action? Now, what is force? When do you use this? What is your ethical, moral, if you like, uh, thought process? What's the practical side of it? So I go into those principles. I'd like to talk about Charlie Wilson's war because like right off the bat, say it wasn't his war. It was really a much more boring government war. I was very excited, but I'm a government guy. It was a logistics war and so on, and a lot of people, and it wasn't, you know, uh, Tom Hanks and uh, Julie Roberts conquering the world. That's not how covert action takes place. The good ones are well-planned, carried out. The bad ones, not well thought out, not carried, uh, carried out very well. So your point was, I almost titled the first book because there's a lot of covert action. It only takes a spark because can't, how many, I can't tell you how many people came in and said, Jack, my country's falling apart. You know, we're all against the government. All it takes is a spark by the United States government and everything will just fall apart and it'll be a great democracy. And I said, well, really interesting. Um, what do you have planned? What's your plan? What's your action? What are you going to do? Why, what do you base that on? It probably takes eight and a half minutes and I'm walking them to the door. In other words, you can't go around lighting sparks. You want to talk about Iran? You want to talk North Korea, Russia? You want to light sparks? I mean, you know, you're not thinking through. What are the ramifications? What, what's the response? Where's it, where are you going with it? So, as I said, uh, you know, you look at Venezuela today, there was almost a coup. They got Chavez on a boat and got him out of the town, and the opposition dropped the ball at the last hour, and they brought him back. And look what we, what we have. But no one would believe that the economy and the society, I mean, you know, I've been there many times, has deteriorated the way and it's still standing. And it won't stand, it'll fall its own weight. I can't tell you what day, what month, what year, um, but you don't start fires around this world unless you know what you're doing. So I'm, I'm an advocate of using that clause as, in the, as stated in our charter, but I would ask for great introspection about it before we use it. And I think there are, in my book, I, and I think my colleagues, all not all, but I would agree that some of them I talk about are good lessons. The book is based on lessons of when that hasn't been, the things that I'm talking about haven't been applied. And those that are successful almost always adhere to the types of principles that people could agree to. I go to the arguments for a just war from the theologians of the 1300s. But I've added a couple of my own. I mean, once you get beyond intrinsically evil or national security risk, you've tried everything, you got proportionality, the people on the ground really want to fight, you have a realistic possibility to, uh, to succeed, you get all that away from the, your, your theologians, and then you get the Jack Divinus, you need bipartisan support, don't dabble in this stuff, make sure you got the money, and make sure the, the reality on the ground matches that. So the theologians didn't get into that, but they didn't have they didn't have congressional oversight. Well, speaking of, I mean, the money, the congressional oversight, the, the politicians, could you speak about how the program you ran in Afghanistan with Charlie Wilson was so successful and why that is, I mean, that can be, you can use that as an example for how covert action can work abroad. Well, let me talk about my congressional colleagues and friends. One thing that people don't realize, most of the leaks never come out of Congress. They come out of the executive branch, right? So you can actually go down and brief them. You can brief those committees. 
there's a tendency on those that execute to say, oh, I don't want to go down. Well, why do I want to go down? Because I, you know, I have to go and explain this thing. We're in a hurry. We got to get this done in a hurry, right? That's, that is the first seed of disaster, right? The oversight is actually an important process. First coordinate with state and justice and wherever military where it's relevant. There is, it shouldn't every, I'm telling you, when you go back through the history, it's always well-intentioned, let's get it done, go and, and the congressional progress process may slow you down a bit, but they can move quickly when the, the flag's up. But you need to go to them because they represent the American people. And you, we might think differently about each one, but one thing they all share is they've got to go back to their, their voters and be held accountable. That is a good check on, on the wild side. So why I say bipartisan support, and it's harder to come by, and I, you know, there's a reason why covert action probably isn't going to get done as frequently or as easily, is that during much of the Cold War, the Democrats and Republicans, when I would go down, there really wasn't much difference on the national agenda. I mean, what we were doing against uh, the Soviet Union and what they were trying to do and how we were going to counter it. So when I would go into the room on, on uh, and ask for help and support, uh, you, you couldn't tell the difference. It was how much can we give you? Why? And I had a friend who would follow not too long after, and he'd go in and brief on Central America, he'd come out all bloody, no money. And the reason was they didn't have a consensus. There wasn't a consensus that the American people were going to support. So, you know, now they were charged to go do that by the president of the United States. So where do you start? You know, you, you start with making sure that there is a consensus and then the American people are going to support it. But if you look at, uh, let me just, I don't want to pull apart Central America. That's a, another, another question, another hour. But the thing that made the Afghan program very successful is the President of the United States decided uh, a couple of them to, to stand, stand up and, and uh, counter the Russian invasion into a country that has always stood between you know, the, the communist forces and ourselves. And uh, the Brits have had trouble. Uh, the Russians have trouble in Afghanistan. We're in the process of now writing part of history which will demonstrate that when you put an army on the ground, getting out isn't easy. But when, when the Russians were there, you had a couple of really important things. You had a force on the ground that for their own interests, they really were, did not want the Russians there and they wanted them out. So the realities on the ground said, and we agreed on principle that this was a bad thing that the Russians had gone in and let's support those groups. But America can't fly into Afghanistan to make this happen. You have to have allies. So the Pakistanis were terribly important. To support 125,000 fighters, you need mules, you need weapons. Now remember, there were no American weapons other than the Stinger, which went in during my time, so I'm very familiar with it. So you have to find weapons, 125,000 weapons of Russian design, right? So think about that. And this is why I come back. It's not Charlie Wilson, it's a logs guy down on the basement who has to go find where you get those. And we ended up building a factory in Egypt and making them, and we bought uh, an equal and sometimes more from the Chinese, right? So you need, when you're doing these things, and you need to have that. So when you're talking about a successful program, then you need the realistic support.
the Congress was very strong in providing money. Charlie led a really strong effort to get money directed to us, but at least as much came from other quarters. But that was key. So you need that type of congressional uh, juice on the line. You can't dabble. Here's $10 million. Why don't you see if you can mess around in Afghanistan? That's a kind of ill-footed, left-footed way of doing business. So you had full support from the United States Congress, the president. The American people really were behind it. You know, they had Rambo movies, if you remember, with Rambo hanging out of the helicopter fighting the, the, uh, the invasion. So, I mean, American psyche was set for, for this. And you give them the wherewithal. And, uh, and I, I think that was at the core. You have to have good people. And what I think is really important as we evaluate putting armies on the ground versus using covert action. If you look at the effort to get the Russians out, you know, you're talking, I don't want to give you the right number because it's probably classified, but somewhere between 100 and 200 people were involved in the whole operation on the American side. No lives lost. A billion dollars. Let's say we, let's say today we put it in today's money, maybe it's five billion. I mean, if you go to the Defense Department and say five billion, I wait, I don't know what that's, 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 a, that's a little digit over here, right? So uh, the, point, the point that I'm, uh, I'm making here is um, the covert action can be a way to, to use people who are genuinely interested and help them. If our objective is to go in, and I would say, I mean, I've been outspoken for years. Uh, some of your audience is going to like it. But if we decide we're going to go into nation building and the people are not saying bring on nation building and bring on democracy, we cannot force feed it. And we certainly can't force feed it by bringing an, an army and putting it on the ground. And then you have a terrible problem. What there was a Russians problem. They just didn't want Russians in there. It really wasn't even communist. They just didn't want Russians, foreigners in there. What the Brits, they just don't want them in there. And Colin Powell, I thought, was and, and President uh, uh, Bush at, at that time, when uh, when we went into Iraq, uh, and they decided to stop. They weren't going to go, you know, into Baghdad because Colin Powell said, "Look, once once we're there, we own it. So we have to get, you know, we have to. We did what we were going to do. And now we get out." And I think there's this hubris. And it's not just Democrats. Democrats are Republicans. I mean, you, you just change. Uh, it's a personality trait. And, you know, oh, we're going to pay for all the war with the, the oil from Iraq. You, know, you have to stop and, and say, wait a minute, just stop. Just stop. You can't, you can't talk like that and expect that to be a reality. So there's this hubris that somehow you go in and it all works out with just a little spark and everybody's happy and you know, voting, voting for candidates in an open and free elections. So... I want to come back. There's a there's a realism that really needs to be applied in covert action. And I said it's a small part of the agency's effort, but it has a very high profile, and usually ends up. You know, you have to know when you sign up. To, okay, I'm going to work on this. You're going to read about yourself, and you're probably going to be before before some congressional hearing. But if you love your country, you say okay, that, that's it comes with the it comes with the territory. So I want to get to to Russia, China, but but just. Briefly on this point, you know, Biden wants to wind down the forever war. And, and a lot of experts are saying that as soon as the military leaves, that government is going to collapse and you're going to be back in a situation similar to 2000. So isn't it, you don't want to be 
bogged down in these places, but at the same time, it's in our national interest to, you, you don't want to create black holes, right? First, don't go in. Then you don't have to deal with this problem. I mean, when you're attacked, when America's attacked, then you must deploy your army, right? So, but what I'm just got done saying, Frank, I'll be very careful when you go in because of how hard it is. Then you have a political risk, and that is who lost Afghanistan? I mean, this is unfair, right? It's a shame we don't sit around and say, okay, you know, we have, it's time to leave. So there's that pressure. And the other one that you're raising is what about Al Qaeda? And, you know, Al Qaeda was, you know, has been beaten back into the ground. But if you remember, the Taliban actually was brought down without the, our forces there. That was special forces, CIA, working with the old tribal group, brought down the, the, the Taliban. You don't necessarily have to have an army there. So part of it is when you, you leave, the Russians left. You know, people don't realize. They think they left and then democracy came. You know, a puppet government lasted for a year or two. And in other words, you know, but the reality set in. It's a tribal country. It's going to go back to tribal and tribal uh, interaction. Definitely, you know, do the best you can. But this doesn't have, you know, I, I don't see a happy ending here. And, uh, and I think, you know, somebody has to bite the bullet and whoever it is, you lost it, okay? So I get it. Al-Qaeda, you know, it's not, it's, a, it's hardly a, even a remnant it was before. But remember, the spectacular, horrible 9-11 was carried out by less than two dozen people. And they could do it from anywhere in the world. And, you know, so, if you leave the 2,000 in or 2,500 and take them out, you're not free from the, the, the ugly hand of terrorism, right? And so, and I understand the reason I mean, people have been in there, they've sacrificed and it's hard, um, but there's no, given the current circumstances, there's, there's no day out there where, um, you know, bringing out the 25 doesn't then lead to the, uncertain and difficult uh, conditions. I want to come back to my other point. What do the Afghan people want? They're going to decide, you know, you may want to stay in, you want to stay in 100 years. Um, this, you got to read the history. You know, it's, uh, you know, you don't want to run against the power and flow of the river of history. So, yeah, I think I think it's time. I know a lot of my friends don't uh, don't agree, and uh, it takes it takes a lot to leave because I said you're, the, the political costs are high. No matter no matter how much history you want to explain to people, you, you, the last person holding the bag. Well said. Before the collapse of the Soviet Union, Colonel Sergei Tretiakov, a foreign intelligence officer in the SVR, listed the KGB's three main adversaries as the United States, NATO, and surprisingly China. So while Putin and Xi Jinping seem to have a close personal friendship, how do you see the Russia-China geopolitical relationship? And how do you compare the Russian-Chinese national security threat? Well, I would say if Comrade Jay is around, I would say, what's number four? And on the Russian list would have China, on the Chinese list would have the Russians. So my point is they're not natural allies, okay? They're neighbors with a lot of contentious issues, historically, culturally, and so on. I always remember when I went out to negotiate 
buying weapons from the Chinese. And you would go through, there's a drill, there's a very formal drill, which I kind of like the structure of the way the Chinese do things. You go back and forth, we're going to be friends, we're going to do this. And then at the very last minute, and I'll, I'll sell you the guns for 165, $165 dollars a gun. And, and that's where we were. And they knew that was below market price. And I knew it was below market price. So in an obtuse way, I was sort of saying to them, well, why are you being so nice? I mean, you don't say that because then the price will <laughs> go up. But it, they, there was a comment to the effect that we think the weapons are being used for a good cause. In other words, it wasn't a commercial deal. It was, we were using, remember, uh, the, the Russians were on the other side. So I think, you know, Stalin was our ally, a genuine ally. You know, but we didn't trust them, right? We knew the history. But World War II was an extremely important ally. And the Russians put up a hell of a fight on the Eastern Front. Uh, millions of people died. You know, uh, you know, it's worth remembering that. So sometimes you have you know, temporary relationships. And this is best looked at. It's in both your interest to stick it in our eye by being good friends, right? Um, but uh, I don't see a natural a natural relationship. I actually believe Russia needs to be in the West. And I said, I, I, you know, I can't convince Putin of that, but I really do it, you know, and I think he's got to give up on us thinking they were in there to get him. Uh, the Chinese represent a, a, a bigger, different issue. I mean, as I said, Russia's Spain, but has nuclear weapons in terms of GDP. But China is a growing, powerful military country. And it's interested are increasingly uh, at odds with ours in, in, in terms of the political, geopolitical interaction. And uh, I'm struck by, uh, for research purposes, I was looking at an actual paper, not a copy from the New York Times in 1940. It was fascinating reading. This was before we got into World War uh, II. And if you scratched out Japan and put China, it was reading the same kind of articles today. Fortunately, you know, we have mutual destruction here. So we're not going to have that kind of war. But the, the tensions between the country are mounting, and that'll be the biggest geopolitical problem. For me, the biggest intelligence problem is how do you deal with the cyber and its particular interference inside the United States? So we have so many questions in so little time. So let's do some Jack Divine rapid fire answers here. We have a very good question, and it is considering the inherent openness of the U.S. and the inherent control in the Russian culture, what are the disruptors that the U.S. can use to counterbalance the seeming advantages that Russia has vis-a-vis -vis America? Well, that's a, good, a very good question. I think it's on a lot of people's minds, but the United States is much more powerful than its people realize. Its ability to extend that power is much greater than people can comprehend. We're a restrained country. Now you say, wait, you went into Vietnam, you did. But when you look at American power, the, what we can do or what we could do and what we actually undertook is a, a small, small part of our capability. Frankly, the rest of the world seems to understand that better, better than we do. And I'm not suggesting we change. In other words, I'm not asking for a belly coast program. It doesn't help democracy. But I, I wouldn't think, I, I would tell you flat out from where I stand, 
I would match our ability to wreak havoc in the cyber world with anybody's. I mean, I'm just, just based on my past experience. I don't, not bringing in some inside scoop here. Uh, but the really hard question is the political question. Can we as a nation find a consensus on what we want to do? Now, this is a very important day because the administration is saying, you know, it's, it's not just saying we're going to do something in kind. I mean, uh, those that are financial experts, I'm not, but, you know, sovereign debt, the ruble, I mean, these are, these are not trivial things. You know, throwing people out, we've done it before, the east side will throw them out. But the, there's a, the part is that, that is really tricky is and unseen activities. I mean, I know how the only way I can interpret that. And so the, the question is, I think we have the capabilities. Do we have an agreed upon understanding? And it's not just inside the White House. What I've been urging is you really need bipartisan support. You need the American people behind it. So I think they're on the right path, you know, but it's very calculated. I have no idea what they're talking about exactly, but, you know, so this is, you know, it's chances for, for, uh, for misjudgment. So I think the problem isn't on the technical side. It's what do we want to do? And this is why I keep coming back. It's a lot easier for us to have a consensus if we have some agreed understanding of what is unacceptable to us and the other side agrees and we, we get somewhere. We need that or we are at disadvantage because they can make a snap decision on that. And so I think we need to, a lot of things that should be forcing us into coming back to a national security strategy. Of course, we can have difficulties with the economy and different views and so on. But when national security as Americans, we should be able to come, come together. There's a, I've seen it in many shapes and forms over the years. And I think it's time we got back to that. So what is acceptable, what is not acceptable? We have a kind of a follow-up question, which I think is also very good. With the increasing use of nerve agents against particular individuals in the past several years, do you feel this is an escalation by the Russian government? And I guess the question goes to, you know, where, where's the red line here? Yeah, so um, they used to call it wet works. You know, we're going back years now, before I was, I was in, grammar school, but, you know, wet works were always part of sort of a, the, the Russian scheme of things. And that wet works referred to, you know, they had Schmersh, I mean, they actually had names for the groups. And, you know, I remember as a young person and, uh, you know, Umbrella, in fact, there was the spy museum the other day, they have a lot of neat stuff, but they had the, a replica of the umbrella that was used to shoot a poison pellet. I think it was Racine on the London Bridge back in the 70s. So, but now we're looking at, you know, using plutonium and using, uh, uh, you know, very exotic uh, uh, weapons, right? And radioactive weaponry. My point would be, why are they doing that? You can make people disappear if you're a nation state, if you want to really do that. No, they want to make an, a, a statement over it. So, I think it's, again, uh, it's a throwback to a different period in time. And it's usually, it's directed against dissidents uh, by and large. And, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm flabbergasted that that is back in, 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 in vogue. And I think that's why that what was good about the sanctions 
today, it compiles several different major offenses, uh, you know, whether it's Navalny, whether it's our elections, Ukraine, saber rattling again. So I think, I think, uh, I think that idea is an old, an old thing coming to the fore. It's really back into the 50s. It's not into, into the 80s. So yeah. What was the first part? What was the introduction question? Because I got carried away with it. And you froze briefly, but I think we got it. And so let's let's move on to another. We have room for a couple more questions. There's a question about what do you think about Edward Snowden and his impact on basically this country? And now he's living in Russia. What's that connection? Right. So all of these questions I'm supposed to answer yes and no. <laughs> They're really big questions. Under 15 seconds. Yeah. What I'm saying, we have. Uh, I really do have to jump off on time today, but uh, I don't think Snowden was an agent when he left. What motivates a lot of people that country, and it really isn't usually big ideologies from positive rights of defense. Decide with your ego, and then you're not doing well in life. And whether you pick Ames or Hansen or Snowden, there's a level of dissatisfaction that drives you into things that, that put you on the wrong side of the fence. So I think he had a mindset that was, you know, uh, was, uh, not saying predestined, but under the right circumstances, you know, you take off. Now he took off with, uh, you know, his thumb drive that, with dynamite, right? And he ended up in the Soviet Union. Now, this was where it becomes clearer to me. Once you're in the Soviet Union, you're not a guest. I mean, you, you, you are part of the state system. And so at that point, what you say, what do you do, and the price you pay is pretty, pretty transparent. And that is, I'm not, I'm not saying he was an agent when he left, but I would say pretty good bet he's an agent of influence today. And that is his his statements, his his contribution to their understanding of our world um, is uh, is hostile. So I, you know, I'm, I hardly see. I, I won't name the university, but uh, some banner across one of our major universities in New York, you know, saying something sweet about Snowden. I said, well, I just wonder if you have any idea of what you're talking about. But you know, so yeah, I don't have a lot of time for what he did. I, there's no way I can condone it in my mind. And, it was brutally uh, damaging. We have a question that's uh, well, kind of a hard question, but probably won't be for you. What do you make of the Russia Donald Trump connection? I knew I knew that was the question. That's like a five-hour question, right? So you got two minutes. You put it. Is he a spy? You know, I was interviewed monthly. I want to say four or five years. Well. Wouldn't be that long, but say three years ago, four years ago, when Donald first came in, and I said, no, he's, not a, "He's not a spy," you know. So you say, "Well, why do you say that?" Well, first of all, if you're a spy, right? And I'm going to tell you from the spy master's perspective, the first thing you do to your spy is whatever you do, don't say anything nice about our country, right? But, you know, be tough, damage, but you know, under the surface, you know undermine the West. So you have that. The second thing is history would tell you, name me, name, name me a head of state that was a spy. 
you can pick any country you know and see who it's a nightmare a political nightmare to have to handle right how do you explain to the americans to the world hey look we've got this guy under control we're scary uh, the oswald incident i know that's back in vogue but the point is the russians you know you know these are things that you don't you don't you don't play with so it it seems to me and you know i think it's worth reading the Mueller report part two read as much as you want about collusion, but read part two about them running around trying to find spies. And it was like the key co Keystone cops because they didn't think Trump was going to win. They didn't have the infrastructure running around doing all this stuff. You don't do that if you got the main guy. You don't have to do that. You can move at a slower pace. So there's a lot of indicators. And the, the problem that I think most of us have, you know, like the Helsinki, I thought that was a bizarre interview with Putin, a, a disheartening one from the intelligence world. but. I mean, I think it's head. I mean, again, I don't think this has anything to do with intelligence. I think it is really there's a piece in there that will not allow him to admit that somehow, somewhere in this scheme of things, the Russians did something. So he says things that you know are inconsistent with the reality, and then he behaved in a, a pretty strong way against the Russians. In other words, when Putin's green men went into Ukraine, we did not provide lethal support. I thought that was a mistake. Um, I don't mean U.S. troops going in, but we should have given the Ukrainians to have a good pushback against the green man. Um, but when he came in, he put the javelin. I mean, a javelin missile is, not, is more than just military support. So there was this inconsistency. And this will be one of those things that will go on. And let me last, add one last point, which is really important in this spy business. And that is most stories are revealed when the spy comes out of the enemy's camp. There's going to be somebody that's going to come out of Russia from the intelligence world. Let me tell you what the real story is. And someday it'll be a knowable one. And my guess, well, obviously I'm betting on my view of it, but um, it's we keep trying to do it in our investigations and so on. What we really need are this is why human intelligence, we need prime sources. You don't have to rack your brain so much. You get somebody, so let me tell you what the reality is. And, uh, and I'm, waiting, I'm waiting for that. Maybe I can write a book about that when that comes out. Well, we will all read it. And, and I'm sure it'll be as good as the first two. If, if you haven't read it, uh, they're incredible. They also have great covers. Um, Jack, thank you so much. Even with technical difficulties, you're a better guest than anyone else. So we really appreciate it. We probably could have gone on longer, but you know, time is up and I just want to thank you again and hand it over to Courtney. Thank you, thank you, Frank, for moderating and Jack for an excellent conversation. Really appreciate having you back. I, I know I know you have to run. So if you if you need to, we completely understand. I'm just going to wrap up here with a few, with a few items. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right, thank you. Um, and thank you everyone who is listening for all your excellent questions. Thank you for listening to Network 2020's audio edition of this virtual briefing. Click on the link in the description below to view all of our upcoming events and find out how you can become a member and gain access to our members-only benefits.